So as a, a child, as a kid on the playground, do you remember that absolutely horrendously terrible thing called choosing teams? Do you remember that? And, and I'm just curious, do we have any among us who are often chosen first? Come on, tell us who you are. You know who you are. There's got to be a few, yeah. Nice. The big guy, right? I'd want you on my team too, Mark, just so you know. There, there's something about that practice of choosing teams. And I was the kid that was never chosen first. I was the kid like, all right, I'll take Schwichtenberg because there's no one else left. You didn't want me on your team because I was not coordinated, wasn't very athletic in grade school. It just, I was a late bloomer on that one. And, and the thing is, is, you know, it was a brutal exercise. I wanted, in my heart of hearts though, to be chosen. Because to be chosen would mean I'm special, I matter, I have a skill, I'm, I'm talented, and I wanted that. And to not be chosen, if I'm honest, hurt, and hurt a lot. It's interesting, though, as we get older, I've found not being chosen sometimes is a lot, a lot more okay with us. You know what I mean? We're like, I'm busy enough, I got enough going on, I don't need another thing to be responsible for, right? You ever say that? You know, like, I'm so glad I wasn't chosen for that. You know, our, our mindset shifts the more responsibility we have. Um, I play all that out today because, you know, when I ask that question, how many of you like to be chosen? And, and I think you'd maybe raise your hand. It kind of depends on what we're talking about. Uh, fascinates me that in the Gospels, and we, we saw it in the Gospel reading today from Luke, that you have the calling or the choosing of the initial 12 disciples by Jesus. It's fascinating on many levels. One of the, the ways it's kind of intriguing is, I mean, if you're going to choose a team of people that are going to bring about a change or leadership, uh, it makes sense in business, it makes sense in the community or any other realm for that matter, that you would choose the brightest, the best, the most qualified, the most talented, those that ensure as much success as possible, you would do your due diligence to choose the ones that would ensure that in the greatest way. And yet, Jesus, after praying on it, chooses 12 disciples. And if you've ever spent time just probing their lives and who it is that he chose, it's a head-scratcher. It doesn't make any sense. Because they're not the brightest and the best. They're not the most outstanding citizens. In fact, I mean, when you get into it, you got Matthew who is despised by anyone who's a Jew because here's Matthew as a Jew working for the Roman government that is gouging the people, robbing them of their religious freedom and robbing them of financial resources and tax collectors that made their living off of getting more and more money uh, in illegitimate ways from people. They, they rob people and here's Matthew. He's chosen to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple. You've also got Simon, a zealot, who is fighting as resistance against the Roman government, almost a, a terrorist of his day. Get those two guys in the same room, huh? <laughs> How's that going to go? Like, what was Jesus thinking? Or, on top of that, add to the fact, the education factor. How many of these guys were educated on a level you'd say, yes, that's who you'd want to, to lead religious transformation in the world? And we're going to get into that today of, like, what was Jesus thinking? And, and maybe the other side to this is, what were they thinking? If somebody says to you, follow me, and you drop everything and you go... How does that happen? I mean, we read the Gospels, and we, we heard it even more so in last week's Gospel reading in, in Luke, where 
where Peter is with the others and, and they're fishing and there's Jesus preaching to the crowds in the boat and the miraculous catch of fish and Jesus says, follow me. And, and it says, immediately they left their nets and boats and they followed him. I mean, can you imagine leaving your livelihood, your, your work and say, yeah, sorry, I'm, I, I gotta go, I'm following Jesus now. Like, who does that? And, and I'd like to suggest, I think, Part of our misunderstanding or having a, if we just pause to say, this is really kind of interesting and strange. Part of it is we don't have cultural context. And, and that's what I hope to give you today. Um, some years ago, um, earlier in ministry, I heard a message uh, by a guy by the name of Rob Bell. And, and he gave this message on the calling of the first disciples. And it, it, it kind of totally transformed my understanding of what was going on here. And I shared that as a qualifier that what I'm about to share with you sounds really smart. I'm not that smart. Understood? You're looking at me. Okay, so we're going to go on. Let me uh, share with you a kind of an interesting quote. If we look in the, the Jewish educational system of the day, and, and all these guys would have grown up in it, uh, to realize context, that the first level of training uh, for any Jewish kid, would have been would have started at the age of six. And uh, there's this great quote from the Talmud. It says this, Under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil. From six upwards, accept him and stuff him <laughs> with the scripture like an ox. In other words, when you get to the age of six, hang on, because it's about to get interesting. So from the ages of six to ten, uh, stage one was called Bet Sefer, which is a house of learning. These Young people would really truly be stuffed with the Torah, which is another word for the first five books of Moses, which is what? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah. Um, that's what they focused on ages 6 through 10. Now, not only did they focus on it, they memorized it. And not just a passage here, a passage there. By the age of 10, they would have completely had memorized all of those first five books of the Bible. Ponder that a little bit. Um, you might say, wow, they, things have come a long way. Our kids, they don't memorize hardly anything anymore. And, and I, I challenge that a little bit by saying this. Um, we just memorize different things. Uh, I guarantee you most kids that listen to music, they have the song lyrics memorized. They do. And, and you'd be amazed at how many lyrics they have memorized of songs. Hundreds of songs. I, I do. You probably do too. Songs you hear, listen to, you start to know those songs. You know the words. You know the lyrics. You memorize them. Um, I, I could quote to you several movies that are my favorite movies. I, I know a lot of, probably every word of dialogue in some of my favorite movies. And, and you know, young people, same thing. If they have a favorite movie, they learn every, and they dialogue with each other in, in movie lyrics. It happens. Or Maybe they haven't memorized how to get to the next level in the video game that they've been spending hours and hours and hours and hours and working on. They haven't memorized. They know every path to getting to that next level. Memorization is something we're able to do. It's just, back then, they were memorizing all of the first five books of Moses, the Torah. And, and here's to put it in context even further. Day one of their learning would look like this. The rabbi would enter into the room and it was a practice by many Jewish rabbis who were teaching this first beginning class from the ages of 6 to 10. They would bring in honey into the classroom that first day. You know, bees, honey. And they would actually go around the room and they'd pour honey on each of the kids' tablets. Um, now, these were not spiral-bound notebooks, right? These were 
either wax tablets or whatever they would have used to write, and they, the rabbi would encourage them, now rub that honey all over your tablet. And you're thinking, what's this all about? Sticky honey? Why would you do that? And, and he'd make this point. He says, now students, over the next few years, we're going to spend time studying Torah. This is the word of God. And he says, now I want you to lick your tablet. Now, if you're a germaphobic person, you're like, come on. Yeah. They, and so these kids like loved honey. It was a special treat. They're licking their tablet that they're going to be learning about God's word. And the point would be made that the word of God is sweet not only to your mouth, but to your life. That there's nothing sweeter to the heart and the soul than the presence of God through his word. And we're going to be studying it together. We're going to be memorizing it. And so you could feel the excitement building already of how important the center of God's word was within Jewish culture. Now the next stage, which was called Bet Talmud, was ages 10 through 14. So if you were able to memorize the first five books of Moses, the Torah, and you, you graduated on to level number two, which again started at age 10 through 14, um, this is where you focus on uh, the remaining books of the Old Testament. So the other 30, what, 34 books of the Old Testament would have been given to memory. Think about that. So now you're going Genesis all the way through the Italian book of Malachi. If you didn't get that joke, talk to me later. Um, and, and, and so the other thing that would start happening at this age level is the rabbi would start asking questions. And these questions implied knowing the text really well. So they'd start asking questions within the context of the text. And have you ever um, watched Jeopardy? The show Jeopardy? Um, some of you like that show. How do you give your answers on that show? You're, you give your answer by giving a question. And, and so it was rabbis taught in that way where they'd ask a question. The idea was then you answered with a question. And, and you'd go back and forth. So an example would be, um, what's two plus two? What, what's the answer? Well, you might say, what is four? No, actually, the way you'd answer it is you'd say, for example, if it was mathematics, it's not the Torah, but um, if it were mathematics, what's two plus two? You would maybe respond, uh, what is 16 divided by 4? And, and it's the answer, right? So it, they'd be probing these young people to be thinking about the text and, and applying it as they're memorizing. It's just profound. And you think of how much the Scripture then was part of these young people. Um, Mary, for instance. Uh, Mary, when she receives the annunciation that she's going to give birth uh, to the Savior, the Messiah, um, what follows is her song, which is called the Magnificat. And that song is primarily a quotation of Old Testament scripture in the Psalms that Mary at this age would have been learning. And, and so it's not strange that she's quoting the Psalms because she had been memorizing them. It just flows from her as an answer to Messianic prophecy. You see, all of these things start to flow together. Of this, they're immersed in the text. It was part of who they were. It's part of what defined them. Even think Jesus at the age of 12. Now we, we know about his birth. We know what happens soon after his birth when his parents escape to Egypt to avoid him being killed uh, by Herod. And, and after that, we don't know a lot until age 12 where he goes missing. And where did they find him? Found him in the synagogue. And he's having conversation 
with the rabbis about Scripture. And it's going back and forth. Jesus would have been in Bet Talmud. This would have been his age group as a young person learning the Scripture. And I would add, he had a little bit of an unfair advantage since all of it was talking about him. Um, and as God, he had it memorized because he's the writer and the author of it all. But yet, in his human nature, certainly he was learning it and memorizing it as well. And, and here he is grappling with, with the rabbis of his day. Um, his parents find him there. And, and he says, wouldn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Um, but just context. Context is fascinating to me. Now, then there's a stage three. And, and this comes ages 14 to 15. And, and this stage called Bet Midrash was reserved for the best of the best. And really the best of the best of the best of the best. This, it was rare for a young student to make it into that class level. Because the questions got harder and the realities of applying the text of God's word to life became so complicated and so complex and so advanced that rarely did a student excel to make it to that level. And yet when a student did, he would be the the highlight of his community. People would celebrate with his family that that child made it to that level of learning the faith. The way it would work is... uh, as different rabbis had different interpretations of, of the Talmud and different interpretations of, uh, of the Old Testament uh, biblical text, um, the, these different rabbis would uh, have different teachings. And, and you would, if you felt that you could exceed and excel on this level of, of Bet Midrash, you would go and you'd find a, a rabbi that would match up with your theology, if you will, and you would audition to, to be welcomed as one of his disciples. And it was a, a very complex and overwhelming thing to be questioned by that rabbi. Um, interesting, too, fascinating, I learned this in that message, was that uh, there was a name for what each rabbi's teaching or his theological bent. It was, it was called his, get this, it's fascinating to me, um, it was called a yoke, um, like a yoke of an oxen. It was their yoke. Now, put that in context. When Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Unlike the yoke of the day of rabbis that were teaching more and more rules and regulations, and more and more legalism, and and more and more things on your to-do list of what it would mean to be a follower of Yahweh, Jesus comes and preaches a different message as the great rabbi, he says, my burden is, is light. My yoke is easy because it's a message of mercy and forgiveness and, and grace. It's not based on what you obtain or how good enough you are or whether you measure up or if you're in the right class or not. It's very different. And, and you know, by, the way, by the way, that's kind of good news, isn't it? For all of us. So put that in context. Uh, if you tried out with a rabbi and you wanted and, and, and if... It didn't work out. You weren't smart enough or bright enough or qualified enough. The rabbi had a, a way of, of basically letting you off the hook. And, and here's what he would say to you if it wasn't going to work out. He'd just simply say, go and pursue your trade. And what that meant was, in other words, go home, back to your family, and follow up with the family business. And that's what most people did. Most young people in those early ages of, of their, their teens um, they followed up by pursuing the family business. So context now. You've got Jesus 
walking along the shores of Galilee, and, and you've got young people pursuing their trade. Many of these disciples were in their teenage years working for their dad, and this is the context. Um, I left one important thing out in this that I think is fascinating. Um, in this phase of learning, there's this, this great, great phrase that if you were pursuing uh, Bet Mishnah, that uh, a phrase would be said of you, and, and here's what it is. Listen to this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Now, what do you think that means? You know, dirty, a culture of dust everywhere. You know, very arid at times when the rains aren't coming. And if you're clo- walking closely with your rabbi, the dust that he'd be kicking up would be covering you. And the idea is that you're following so close in the footsteps of your rabbi that you'd be covered in his dust. Quite a thought, isn't it? A visual, right? So again, this is all cultural. And that desire every kid would have, oh, how great would it be to be in Bet Mishnah, but nobody rarely ever made it. Now here Jesus comes and finds the dropouts, as it were, um, work in the family business, they're fishing, they're tending to their nets. And Jesus says to Peter and, and to Andrew and, and James and to John, he says, follow me. And, and we find out they drop everything and they follow him. And, you know, you might say, well, who does that, right? But now cultural context. A rabbi has chosen you. You see what I'm saying? And they didn't try out. It's not like they earned it or deserved it or were smart enough. They were, they were already on the B team they, and made it in rabbinical school. And yet Jesus goes to where they are and he says, drop your nets, follow me. For now on, you're going to catch people. And they drop their nets. And you got Zebedee, the dad who is there, and, and we don't have any mention of him saying, oh, but boys, what am I going to do? There's a reason why he's not complaining. He's running home telling his wife, honey, the boys, they've been chosen. She's like, what are you talking about? They're not that smart. It's like, I know, but they've been chosen by a rabbi. And, and you know, the next day they would have gone to the market and they're like, you notice who's not with us today? You see? You notice? They're like, yeah, where are your boys? They've been chosen. Like, no way. I know. Isn't that awesome? I mean, this would have been big news. They've been chosen. And how much more so when the rabbi that chooses them puts it all in context that he's a rabbi that doesn't choose people based on whether they measure up or are good enough or strong enough or faithful enough, but rather a rabbi by grace and mercy chooses the most unlikely. And yet God has his way in their life. I want you to ponder this a little bit in your context today. And and as you think of, you know, if they were chosen... What's that say about us? And our calling and our excitement level for that choosing. What's possible for us? When you think about one like one of the original disciples, Philip, and, and Philip came from a little town called Bethsaida. It was, they didn't even have a stoplight in Bethsaida. They didn't, it wasn't big enough to have a McDonald's or any other fast food restaurant back then. And I mean, it was a small little town that everybody's business was everybody's business. Anybody come from a small town, you know what I mean. And, and yet Philip is chosen by Jesus to follow him. And you think, well, what, what can a kid from a small town do? And, and yet by the transformation of Jesus, spending time in his presence, the word made flesh, and, and the sweetness of that time spent with Jesus and the power of his word and, 
And the transformation of seeing Jesus heal people and seeing Jesus feed the 5,000, seeing Jesus go the way of death on their behalf that he said he would. I'm going to die in your place. And, and that which made no sense, and yet he rises again to new life and begins to reveal to them that this changes everything. Philip ends up traveling to the Greco-Roman city uh, in Asia Minor known as Heropolis, an ungodly city of, of Roman rule and Domitian who wanted nothing to do with Christians. Here you got Philip walking into that town unafraid. And they had this thing called Dom, Domitian, Domitian's great Gate. And, and when you'd walk through that gate, you were worshiping Domitian. You were saying, uh, he is God. Philip refused to walk through that. And, and his family who was with him, they said, aren't you worried? And, and he assured them. He says, you know what? I, I've seen Jesus do amazing things. And, and he's got this. And, and that gave Philip an opportunity to share Jesus, early Christian, Christian tradition says, with all of Heropolis. And, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to faith and were baptized in Jesus' name, covered in the the dust and the blood of Jesus, their rabbi, who transforms lives and chooses unlikely people. Think about Thomas, you know, the doubting one, the one who has big questions of Jesus when he's going the way of the cross, and he's often called the doubting one as a result. And yet, Thomas goes down to India. I've shared this story before. I had a chance to be there in, in Chennai and stand on St. Thomas Mount where Thomas had proclaimed the gospel of Jesus even in the face of persecution and they threw him off of a cliff, didn't kill him and he kept talking about Jesus. He's like, Jesus loves you. He's died for you. He lives for you and they threw him off the cliff again and then run him through with a spear and, and it's there they have since built a chapel in his memory, in his honor and as that church in India continues to exist in the passion of believers in India to reach their, their nation and their people with the love of Jesus in the face of persecution that continues. 2,000 years later, what can God do in your life? What's your Shanai, India? What's your Her Heropolis? What's, maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your place of work. Maybe it's your neighborhood. Maybe it's the um, the health club that you have every intention of going to more often, but what if you went there not just to work out, but to share and, and let the dust of your rabbi rub off on those around you? What if God used you to make an eternal difference? And if we realized how amazing it is to be chosen by God as a baptized child who's been told again and again, as Jesus says it, John 15, 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And he did, and he has, and he continues to choose you. And it's not by what you've done, not because you deserve it, not because of your pedigree, but rather because of him. You've been chosen. That's an amazing thing. And it changes life as we know it today. May the dust of our rabbi continue to cover us as we follow him ever closely. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Thank you for choosing us. We are not worthy, and yet you've called us by name. You've rescued us from the sins of our past and the broken realities that we call our life. And you redeem us, and you set us apart and set us free. And yet we live in a world so filled with hopelessness. And it's through your people, your followers, your chosen ones, that you reveal hope and the sweetness of joy in life in your presence. 
Lord, help us, covered in your dust by way of our baptism and the blood of your, your cross, go and share it. May it rub off on those we speak and love and show compassion. In your name, Jesus, as your people, amen.